Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, in Joshua chapter 23. We're continuing our trek through the book of Joshua. We're going to be wrapping it up here next week. How many of you, when you were in school, uh, did chemistry experiments? You remember, do you, any of you remember some of your chemistry experiments? You know, I thought they were pretty cool. Then you had the science fairs. Okay, here's a test. How many of you did the, did the, in the, your science fairs that you would have as a school, co-op, whatever, you built the, the volcano and you did the, the, the vinegar and the baking soda thing for it to run? Any, anybody out there, you, you guys did? There's a handful of us, okay. Um, I did that except I did it in a different way because that's, a, that's pretty cool when you do this science experiment and you say, now watch this. And everybody, most of the little kids there had never seen this before. And all of a sudden, the, the, the volcano just starts frothing and, and all of this stuff starts coming out. Well, I decided in my chemistry experiment, instead of focusing on the, how cool that is, that it's, it's, uh, it's all of this junk, whatever it is, this foam is coming out of the volcano, I took a little cup and, and I did the same experiment, but I wanted to demonstrate that there is, that this chemical reaction actually produced heat. And so without my mother knowing it, I borrowed our thermometer, you know, the thermometer, the Back in the days when there was mercury on one end and it would go up. And so I wanted to demonstrate that this is going to produce heat. So I had that little, little cup right there in front of the class. And I had vinegar in it and I put some baking soda in it. And I started, I said, I'm going to show you a chemical reaction and it's going to produce heat. So I put the thermometer in there and I'm stirring it around. And you, it's foaming everywhere. And, and, and okay, and then I pull it out. And I realized that the mercury end of the thermometer had busted. And the only thing I can think of was how am I going to tell my mom that I broke our thermometer and you know I, I was I don't know I, th I think I was in sixth seventh grade whatever it was um, but there is a for you don't know there is a chemical reaction that takes place when you mix vinegar and baking soda and it guess what produces heat actually produces quite a bit of heat broke my thermometer put the mercury everywhere and and another experiment, this was in ninth grade in IPS, Introduction to Physical Science, we had to do this process called electrolysis. And then I'm trying to remember, and I asked some people, and so maybe some of you chemists can help me here, but the opposite of that is when you combine hydrogen and oxygen to create water. Um, and, and I'm forgetting the process, but don't you mix hydrogen and oxygen and put a, 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 a burnt match or something that's glowing into the tube and then there, it combusts and produces condensation on the uh, inside of the test tube that's upside down. Nobody? Oh, come on. But there's a chemical reaction. Here you have two gases and then by this tiny experiment, there's a little chemical reaction and it produces water. It changes from a gas very, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's gas, it's not, like moisture hiding somewhere, okay? It's oxygen and, and, and hydrogen, and they're combined to produce water. Now, I believe that Joshua's challenge in his old age, it's now 
He's now saying, I want you to go forth, each of you in chapter 23, go forth. Now that the land has been conquered, go into your tribal territories and take the land from your enemies. And this is going to require, this is what I'm going to call, this is going to be a chemistry experiment, if you will, in which you're combining two ingredients that we're going to look at in order to accomplish this task. We're going to see the intersection of these two elements that we're going to get into today. And I want us to meditate on the intersection of these two character qualities because this is going to be absolutely necessary for the, for the Jews, the Hebrews, if they're going to now that they've conquered the land in general to go into their tribes and see the enemy leveled. And so the victory is there, but now they need to endure this and it's going to be a long process because God said, I'm not going to wipe out all the enemies at once. Uh, you're going to need to take these two elements and you're going to need, you're going to, need to bring them together and, and live in this intersection, if you will, of these two elements. And we're going to find out what those elements are and we're just going to spend some time meditating on this because it has profound implications for how you live your life every day and the degree of victory that you walk in in your life with Christ. So you're there Chapter 23, starting with verse 1. I'm going to be reading the first 13 verses. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then old and well advanced in years, I'm assuming he's much more than 55 years old then, right? Summoned all Israel. Yeah, you'll get that. Uh, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. Again, way over 55. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Does that sound familiar to you? I hope it does. He says to them again, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so we understand that by this time, that book of Moses had been written down. It was in book form by this time without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with the, the, these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast. I thought that was interesting. Meredith had no idea what I was going to be preaching on, but in this last song that we sung, hold fast, I will hold fast to the Lord. And he's challenging them here, hold fast to the Lord, your God, as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations to this day. No one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord, your God, fights for you just as he promised so be very careful to love the lord your god but if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you and if you intermarry with them and associate with them then you may be sure 
that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your hands. And I'm, I'm sorry, eyes. That's, that's what it says, yes. Thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given. I want us to emphasize again, there are two phases here. They've already accomplished the first phase. They are now moving into phase two. The first phase were the various campaigns, north, south, central, and they have conquered these lands, but now the tribes are being called to be dispersed. Moses, if you can just imagine, the, it's, it's really the leaders who are representing the, the tribes are gathered there before them. He's giving the leaders instructions. Okay, we're done with phase one. You're about to move to phase two, and the same principles that applied to phase one are going to apply in phase two. And what does he tell them to do? He says, be strong. How does that translate? Now, if you were to go back to chapter one, as we looked at this, we talked about courage. We talked about being strong in the Lord. And the heart of this is faith, the sense of confidence in the Lord. And so on the one hand, we have this faith. Now, here's something cool about faith. When you enter into your relationship with Jesus Christ, the very first thing that you must do is to what? Believe in him. And so faith is that seed that's planted in the ground. Faith is what initiates this dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ who has rescued us on the cross some 2,000 years ago and now we stand forgiven him in his righteousness, etc. We are saved. But now we are called on this journey of what? Faith. And so our faith grows. And the more we we choose to believe in Jesus and this faith grows, we see God rescuing us over and over. So our walk with the Lord is initiated. It starts with faith by grace through faith. And this journey, this walk, this pilgrimage with Christ continues by that faith being tested, becoming stronger and growing. And the more we grow in that faith, the more we see God intervene. So the very first thing that Joshua calls the people to in chapter one is have faith. So they have faith and God does phenomenal miracles. And he says to the point where one of you would be, were able to rout a thousand one of you able to route a thousand. Now, I'm reminded at this moment of David and his mighty men. And if you were looking 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, you'll see picture stories of David's mighty men. One occasion in which David and another uh, of his mighty men were in a field and apparently the, the Israelites were taunting the Philistines saying, oh yeah, well, our God is bigger. My God can beat your God up and this type of thing, I imagine. And then the Philistines start charging the field and it says the Israelites got out of there. And it was David and this one mighty man. And between the two of them, and you know how they, you know, back to back, that's how I'm picturing the sword in hand. They took the entire Philistine army, it says. There was one who was able to slay 800 of the enemy. Eliezer, 
He fought so hard all day, all day. I don't know what it's like to fight for one hour. I've never had to fight, in fact, with a sword in my hand, except when I was fighting my brother with wooden sticks and belted him in the face with it. Uh, Other than that, I don't know what it's like to wield the sword all day, and this guy did that, and it said at the end of the day, when he had defeated the enemy, the sword froze in his hand. You know, no super glue, nothing like this. It froze in his hand. He, the muscles had just grasped the hold of that sword. You, get, you, you just get this sense of virility, this sense of determination and resolve. I will take the enemy down. That's faith. That's faith, church. And so what I'm saying is, is, is now they're moving into phase two. You, you had to have faith in phase one. You got to have faith in phase two. But now it's not all of us together. It's, it's individual tribes and, and maybe families in those tribes grouping together to oust the enemy. And it's going to require faith. But it's faith that grows. And the more, here's the interesting thing about faith. The more you see God step in on your behalf, the stronger your faith gets. The more you realize My God is faithful. When God is faithful on your behalf, that evokes what? It evokes faith in his faithfulness. Do you follow me? So that is on one side. But I said there were two ingredients here that he is calling us to. And we find that right after he says, you know what? One of you, this is in phase one, and you can anticipate this in phase two, one of you, was able to rout a thousand. Why? Because God was fighting for you. And then he concludes in verse 11, he says, so be very careful, very careful to do what, church? To to love, to love the Lord your God. You know, Joshua uses this word love very sparingly. I would venture to say if there's one word that he really focuses on, it's this sense of be strong, have confidence and faith in the Lord. But two times he uses this word love in his book of, uh, called Joshua. It's here and in the previous chapter. So let's go back to the previous chapter and let's look at verse five. And this is when, as you might recall from last week, This is when he is speaking to the two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half tribe of Manasseh. And he is now sending them back to their homes. Thank you very much. You've obeyed the command of Moses. You fought for your brothers and you have done your job. You've done it well. Now go back and take care of your family and serve the Lord. But he says, excuse me, he says this in verse five, but be very careful. Just like there in verse 11, be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. And I want you to note five verbs here that he uses. Number one, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, which is another word that we find in the chapter we read this morning, and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. You might remember Jesus when he was asked what's the greatest command, he asked the question, what's the greatest command? And the guy said, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, exactly, yes. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is like right at the heart there. And he's saying, serve him. Now, here is what, here's where I'm going with this. 
I truly believe that Joshua is needing them to understand the intersection of faith and love. Faith in God and love for God. Now, I would venture to say that many of us can kind of get confused with faith and love, and we see them as very separate, but I would suggest that they are so similar and that victory is found in the intersection of faith and love. I would even say this, that love is implicit, and you can write this down. Love is implicit in faith, and faith is implicit in love because this is their true nature. Just as at the heart of repentance is faith, And at the heart of faith is repentance. You cannot separate faith and repentance. The only way you can do that is to misunderstand them. So I'm going to suggest to you that implicit and at the very heart of faith is this idea of love. And at the very heart of love is this idea of faith. And if you ever come across a faith that's devoid of love, it's not true faith. And if you ever come across a love that's devoid of faith, it's not true love. So what we're, what we're really getting at here is understanding faith and love. But let me ask you this. The first guy or girl that you had feelings for, I'm going to use this word that you were infatuated with. That's an okay word to use. You understand what I'm talking about. I, I have heard people say, and maybe some of you have said this to me, and I've kind of chuckled a little bit as you know, young men have come to me and said, I just I really love this girl. I really love her. I, I just remind me one more time how old you are. Oh, that just means nothing, Pastor Mike. I, I just really love her. Okay, yeah. Well, um, the truth is, and many of us, if not all of us, have experienced this. Uh, we call that infatuation, and, and it's because in this idea of love, you know, I can remember when I was in sixth grade, man, I love this girl down the street. No, no, I was infatuated with her, okay? And when you finally meet the girl, when I met Meredith, I began to understand what love really was because I found myself fully devoted to her, fully devoted to her, yet when I was in sixth grade, yeah, I really love this girl, Dad. And I remember my dad and I had this conversation, and yeah, I really love her, Dad. And my dad probably chuckled just like I have done so many times when guys says, yeah, I really love her. And the, the truth is, deep love is so much more than emotion, isn't it? So much more than emotion. Well, how about faith? Faith is more than just simply acknowledging the facts. We sang a song, I believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son and the Holy Spirit. And these are important. This is is a creed that we were singing about, the Apostles' Creed. I grew up saying the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, every Sunday. And I believed the Apostles' Creed. But believing the Apostles' Creed did not save me. It's important that we get the facts and we believe them, but believing the facts is not what we have been invited to. We have been invited to believe in a person, Jesus Christ, all right? And may I suggest to you that I would venture to say that the devil believes in the Apostles' Creed. He knows the facts. He witnessed the facts, church. He saw Jesus die on the cross. That was his plan. 
Can I just say, say also that his plan totally failed? It bombed and, and that God set an ambush, and I preached on this a couple of months ago. God set an ambush by the cross that in his divine sovereignty had the opportunity to rescue the world. That was his plan. And so it is easy for us to get caught up in this idea of, of believing facts. And we have been invited to do more than that. But we have been invited to believe in Jesus. And, and there were times in which Jesus was asked tough questions. And at the heart of it, instead of saying, you would almost expect him to say this, instead of saying, believe in me, sometimes he would, he would use this term, love. Love the Lord your God. And so I'm going to suggest to you that true love is this sense of commitment and devotion and faith in Jesus. And true faith is the same thing. It is faith, it is devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ. And in this case, God. And he is inviting them now on this journey, this intersection of love and faith that is summed up in words like devotion, summed up in the word that we have here in chapter 23. What is it? Verse Eight, hold fast to the Lord. The sense of commitment, the sense of following after. And in verse 12, he says, but don't turn away. See, turning away is the surrendering and turning your back on this intersection of faith and love. So why am I even going here? I hope that we are going to do more than just philosophizing about faith and love and trying to grapple with these concepts that you've heard since you're in you know, Sunday school when you were a little kid. But there is something deep here that is at the heart of victory that many times we can miss. Number one... This type of faith and love is relational. And I'm just going to mention three things real quickly and focus on one of them. So it, these things, they're, they're relational. Faith and love are relational. The more you grow in them, you will grow in them because you're focusing on the relationship with God. I would also say that they're cyclical. They feed on one another. And the more I exercise faith and love in God and he steps in, pours out his grace, does awesome dynamic things, answers prayer, it causes me to what? To trust him more, to fall in love with him more. And, and Blackaby wrote a book called Experiencing God. And that's the heart of what he's getting at. This, this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is, is at its heart, it is... Cyclical, it feeds on one another and it invites us into experiencing the depth of this relationship with God because as I trust him and fall in love with him more, he intervenes and he steps in and, and he does awesome things and it causes me to believe in him more and love him more. And it's a cycle. And so this is, what, this is what Joshua is getting at here. You're done with phase one. And this is something that is going, this faith and love, it's going to grow more and more. And no matter how hard it's going to be in ousting the enemies off your territory, off of, out of your inheritance that, I've get, that God has given to you, you need to hold fast to him. You need to fight. You need to endure. 
And so we want to see the dynamic here, the, this, this uh, cycle here. But then the last thing is that this intersection of faith and love is also dynamic. And by that, I mean more than just it changes, it grows. And that's what I want to speak on for the rest of my time this morning. How do we allow this love and this faith to grow? And, and again, you're going to find that it's rooted in relationship. And it, it's got to be. It's relational. It's cyclical. But it's dynamic. It continues to grow. And I don't know about you, but it, it, it says here, do you want to continue? Joshua was saying, do you want to continue one of you? routing a thousand do you want to continue to see god step in and intervene then you have got to what does he say in verse 11 he says you've got to be careful to love the lord your god so i don't know about you but i think this is pretty important turn with me you're going to want to maybe put a piece of paper there in joshua 23 but let's turn to acts chapter 6 here now, we've seen this now in the Old Testament. I want to get a little bit of perspective uh, now in the New. And the Lord just laid on my heart this man, Stephen. And Stephen was a, a servant in the church. He was one of seven. Some people have called them deacons in chapter 6. But they were the ones that were now going to be serving the people. The apostles, as they're devoted to prayer and the word and the ministry, God was doing miracles, evangelism taking place through them, giving general oversight to the thousands of people that have been added to the church. But there was a need in the church, the, the Grecian widows whose needs were going unmet. And so they chose seven Greek men. And it says right there, in uh, verse 3, he said that these seven men from among you had to be known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Now look over there in verse 10, and what does it say? So, uh, let's look at verse 8 first. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Just note, he is not an apostle, and yet God is using him as one, if you will. God is doing miracles through him. But opposition arose. And it is in the midst of this opposition, this enemy, if you will, of the gospel that is trying to stamp out this concept of Jesus being raised from the dead, which Stephen wholeheartedly believed in. This opposition is coming against him as he's preaching the gospel, as he's doing miracles. And it says here in verse 10, it says, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Just as in Joshua's day, Joshua said, no one will be able to stand up against you. That's the idea of victory. That's the idea of overcoming the enemy. They will not be able to stand up against you. Now, I don't know about you. When I hear things like no one will be able to stand up against you, that's a promise to me. That, that's, that's something that challenges and encourages me because I face enemies of all kinds uh, all around me, not the least of which is my flesh and my emotions and desires and that, that God would bring those under control and defeat that enemy beginning with me. But I want to see it. I want to see it grow exponentially out of it. I want to see God use me 
as one might route a thousand. And our enemies comes in all shapes and sizes and all different kinds. And we've talked about some of these enemies over the last several weeks, actually the last couple of months since July, since July as we've been going through the book of Joshua. But I would like you to just take a moment and refresh your memory of maybe what, not who, what some of your enemies are. I say what, not who, because I don't want you writing down the name of your spouse. That's not fair. Spouses, you're on the same team, right? You're both in the kingdom of God, I'm assuming. You're fighting the same battle, but it's not against one another. That's what the devil wants you to believe. But your spouse is not your enemy. You might want to even write that down. My spouse is not my enemy. It's she, that your spouse is not your enemy. The devil is, is he's trying to come in and bring disunity. That's the enemy. And so I, I don't know about you. I, I want to know how can I grow in this faith and this love so that I can continually walk in victory. And it says here that the reason why Stephen, let me back up, as he preached, it says no one was able to stand up against him. All the skeptics in the world can try to chip away at the truth of the gospel and they will never succeed. People, skeptics have been firing their weaponry against the gospels, against the truth of the word of God. They've tried to undermine it. It's just myths. People have come up with these incredible fairy tales of what they think about the Bible. And every hammer that has been that has hit this anvil of the truth of God's word has been broken. And I'm going to suggest to you that if you but stand on the gospel, there is nothing that can be victorious over that truth. And so as Stephen is proclaiming this truth, as Stephen, God is using him to do signs and wonders, he found his enemies coming to, and, and you can read further, but coming to their, their only weapon of sharing falsehoods. They presented false testimony against him, just like they did with Jesus. They brought forth false testimony against him. That's the only way they felt that they could defeat him because the truth could not. And so as I look at this, I see Stephen winning a battle. But if you were to look at the very heart of Stephen and, and what made this man, who is he? So that, and, and for, for many of us, we, we can't speak eloquently. I personally don't think that I can speak eloquently. I have a passion in my heart for the gospel and God is you can use it great, but I wouldn't consider myself someone who's eloquent. They're eloquent. There are, there are preachers out there. Uh, Spurgeon, perhaps one of the most well-known ones, very eloquent, very able to use words. I think Eric Ludi uses words well. Many preachers, they, their words just flow, and it's like, that's awesome. Wow. But I, I imagine that to some degree, that's what we're seeing here in him. But there was, there was a dynamic in him that I myself, though I don't view myself as eloquent, I can still claim for myself and you can still claim for, so you don't have to be eloquent so that nobody can stand up against you. So that, what does it say here? So that they could not stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he spoke. And that is because as we read earlier, he was full of the spirit. 
He was full of the Spirit. And, and here's, what I'm, here's where I'm going with this. I'm going to tell you this right now, right up front. That for you to be full, for you to walk in this journey, in this intersection of faith and love, you are going to be filled with the Spirit. You're going to be filled with God so that he is going to use you. As we move now into the New Testament, the focus becomes on the power of the Spirit as he anoints us and uses us. Just like he did with Stephen here. Now, being full of the Spirit, as you were to look at the book of Acts, is a synonym for the baptism with the Spirit. I would suggest to you that you can look in, in Acts 1 where he, the promise is you'll be baptized with the Spirit. But what word is used in chapter 2 when the Spirit does come and baptize them? They were all filled with the Spirit. In chapter 9, on the way to Damascus, Paul, then called Saul, had an event with Jesus Christ that forever changed him. He was converted on the road to Damascus, and it was three days later that Ananias laid hands on him. He restored his sight, and guess what else happened? He was filled with the Spirit. So I want to be careful being filled with the Spirit, being baptized with the Spirit, is not synonymous with our salvation. Do we receive the Spirit? Yes, we do but we are not baptized, or let me use a different word. We are not immersed in the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. As we go through the book of Acts, we see numerous synonyms used for this concept of the baptism with the Spirit. But it, it is not a one-time event. It is something that is a process that we are filled up with the Spirit, that we are full of of the Spirit. When you're baptized with the Spirit, it, that, that's, it, it's not a one-time event. Now, we know this because as they're trying to find leaders, they are looking for someone who is full of the Spirit and wisdom. Stephen learned how to walk in this filling of the Spirit, and it was because of this his enemies could not stand against him. And so I, I suggest that when, as we move into this idea of this intersection of faith and love, look at, what is it, verse 5, they chose Stephen, and it there calls him a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was passionate about Jesus Christ. He was passionate for the Lord. Turn with me now to Psalm 27. I imagine that all of us have our favorite psalms. Honestly, this is one of my favorites because it shows, it highlights this intersection of faith and love, this sense of devotion to God. And he starts off by saying in, in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse three, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then will I be confident. Why is he so confident? Why is David so, because he's such a dynamic, awesome warrior. I, I, I wouldn't want to take that away from him. But that's not where he finds his confidence. It's not in his own abilities. Look at, look at this. The very next verse, one thing I ask of the Lord. 
This is what I seek. If you are David, you're a king, you're talking about the enemies coming against you and you're, having, you're, have, you're finding confidence in God. What would be the one thing that you would seek God for? Wouldn't it be victory, peace, safety? That's the one thing that I seek. But David doesn't say that, does he? What is the one thing that he is seeking? And I'm going to suggest to you what he's seeking is this intersection of faith and love. He words it differently, though. But look how he words it. And if we had much more time looking at this entire psalm, we would see words jumping out. And you would see, wow, this is, this is deep stuff. This is rich. This is good. What is it that he seeks? He says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Can I just tell you that a king would not be allowed to dwell in the house of the Lord? So he's not talking about the temple. Actually, the temple wasn't even built in David's day. But he talks about the temple here. Actually, he goes on and says to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Let me just remind you, the tabernacle is what was around in David's day, not the temple. But it was a mirror of what? The, the tabernacle or temple in heaven. He is referring to the dwelling of God. And it is the dwelling of God on earth that he is seeking. He is, he's not asking that he be able to be a priest and live in the tabernacle or the temple of the Lord. He is simply wanting the presence of of God. This is what he's saying that he's seeking after. If you don't believe me on that, look at verse uh, 8. He says, my heart says of, of, of you, my heart says of you, God, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do you know in, in many times as this Hebrew word, because this is translated literally here, face, this word that's in Hebrew means face is many times in various versions translated presence. As Esther bolted into the throne room of the king, she came before the face of the king. We translate it though, she came into the presence of the king. David is seeking the presence of God. David is seeking this time with God, this relational dynamic in his life that, that thoroughly wins his heart, that creates this passion for God, and he is seeking after him. He is seeking after the, the presence of God. And he says, for in the day of, as a result of all this, in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. As a man who is daily seeking the presence of God and this relationship with, with God himself, he will keep me safe in that relationship. That's what he's saying here. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. So for David, what's the formula, if you will, for success? What's this one thing that I'm going to seek? What's this one answer? the presence of God, this relationship with God, this intersection of faith and love. And that's what I want to live every day. That's what I'm seeking after. And it is thoroughly relational. So having said that, here's my question. And I want to just explore a few ideas here. How do we develop this faith and love, this devotion 
to God, to Jesus Christ? How would you be able to? Because that is the question. That is the one thing that we should seek. If you're, if you're looking to overcome the enemy in your life, this is the key. How do we do it? I'm going to suggest as Psalm 27 makes it really clear, it's just simply, number one, time with God. I've heard it said that quiet times are legalistic. Quiet times are not legalistic unless you make them legalistic, that somehow by having a quiet time, time with God in the word and prayer and worship and those things that feed your spirit in this relationship with God, if you're expecting that that is somehow going to save you, you're way wrong. But it is as we seek God that he reveals himself as the mighty, awesome God that he is and he ministers to our spirit. So I'm going to suggest, number one, time with him is absolutely essential. Now, only because I, in my ministry, I, I do speak to this issue so much, I'm going to move past it, and I want us to talk about something a little bit deeper. Number two, I believe that God wants to constantly place us in these situations in which we desperately need him. Because I believe that as God comes in, and I mentioned this earlier, in experiencing God, when God comes in and meets this need of mine, and I realize there is no way that I can do this, I have to have God intervene, and when he does, it so thoroughly wins my heart and your heart. Now, to illustrate this, I, I want to just share with you Mike and Sarah Jefford's story of how they fell in love with one another. Um, Mike, I think, had known the Lord for some five years. God was developing character in him, and there was insecurities that God was pushing out of his life. And he had just come to me and he said, you know, Pastor Mike, I am so done with these insecurities in my life. They just undermine, they undermine my relationship with the Lord and with my relationship with people. I'm done with this. So if you see anything, a hint of this stuff in my life, you have total freedom to come to me and say, hey, Mike, and help me see it and address it in my life. It's got to go. And Mike was really serious about that. He was at the altar like every Sunday, and he was just desperately crying out to God. He, was, he would have what he calls his field time, like David in the field with the sheep. Uh, he was having his field time with the Lord daily and just really seeking after God and, and trying to live out Psalm 27, this one thing I will seek, and that is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And, and so Mike was really pressing in in, in this understanding and, and pursuit of God. And about a month or so later, and Mike was already changing. Meredith and I were just amazed. Wow, he is really serious. And everything is on the line and surrendered to the Lord. This is cool. Uh, Sarah then called Sarah. Her name was Sarah Holland. She was living with us for a season. And she got sick. So Mike, as a friend, as a friend, came over and he, he just served. He just said, what can I do to help? And if he was going to bring something special for her, then he would bring something special for all the girls in the house. And, you know, we could read between the lines. We're not stupid. And we could see a plan developing here. But he, he really did want to serve her. And I'm going to tell you this, that though Sarah had fought it at the time, her heart was softened 
and she saw a different mic that began to shine through. And that's because there was a different mic and God was changing him. And he served with no strings. Well, there was, I'm sure there a little bit here, but he, he genuinely as a friend was, was trying to just care for him. And so she came to me after she got better and it was, it was, she was sick for a while. And she came to me about a month later and she said, so, so Pastor Mike, um, tell me a little bit about Mike Jeffords and what you see a change in him. And I'm going to tell you this, at that moment when she asked me that question, I realized Mike was winning her heart because there was something in Mike that was serving and meeting a need. And he was truly learning this idea of selfless serving and, and such. And I'm going to tell you, you know, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, when you see him step into an impossible or difficult, very difficult situation, and you see how he comes and meets your need, he wins your heart. He wins you. And many of you are probably wondering, God, why is it that my life seems so hard? I mean, have any of you ever asked that question? Any of you ever asked that question? God, why is my life so hard? And, and I can remember Mary Smith asking me that question some 10, 15 years ago, Pastor Mike, and in tears, I don't get it. Why is my life so hard? And graciously, I would constantly point her back. I realize that your life is so hard. But here is the difference between walking in victory and walking in defeat. That you see this difficulty as an opportunity. Not as God opposing you, but as an opportunity. And he has privileged you with this difficulty. He has privileged you with this day-to-day -day fierce battle because, Mary, he is wanting to show you how much he loves you. He is wanting to win your heart. And can I just say this? Over the last 10 years, something absolutely phenomenal has happened in Mary Smith's heart. And she daily wakes up and she's in the word and maybe you're one of them and you'll get a text and her, her daughter's following suit and sending out text, uh, uh, scripture passages and, and focus on the, the, the power of God and the love and the faithfulness of God and, and just describing this is the God that we have the privilege of serving no matter how hard your life is right now. God is giving you the privilege of stepping into this incredible difficult situation in your life and allowing him to step into that yoke with you and be able to bear this burden because he's wanting to win your heart. He's wanting you to experience this intersection of faith and love that, that, that causes us to be that mighty warrior that stands in the day of battle and routes a thousand. But it's because of what he does in those difficult times in which he is winning your heart. And he's calling you deeper, come deeper with me. This is a journey and it's hard right now. And I don't know about you, but I have been through some really difficult situations and one even recent this year in which I have had to say, Jesus, you need to right now help me 
bear this yoke. It, it is, it's beyond my strength to the point where I imagine for many of us, we just, we just want to say, God, I, I just give up. This Christian thing, this, it's too hard. It's too hard. And if you're a Christian, you've got a bullseye on your back. You have the enemy who wants to pick you off. And it is only, it is the weak that will not make it. It is those that choose to understand this and say, I want to be this type of man, this type of woman who grasps this and who steps in and, be, and is able to bear this yoke as I invite Christ into this situation to help me bear it because I know that as I move forward and as I'm able to bear under this burden that I'm going to walk in victory and that walking in victory is going to endear my heart to Jesus so that I'm going to invite him into everything Every situation, and you know what? You're going to find that every difficult situation that you face, everyone, when you invite him in, he is going to do something awesome and marvelous that will amaze you and will win your heart. And you're going to see that growth, that dynamic of growth taking place in this intersection of faith and love. This sense of devotion and pursuit of Jesus Christ. You know, I read a very good article uh, just recently. One of the enemies out there that has become so prevalent in our day is pornography. So easy with one click of your mouth, boom, you are there. And he says, you know what? I, he, he wasn't speaking down to this con these concepts of accountability and fleeing temptation, these are biblical concepts. But he said, you can implement every strategy that you will, but there is only one that will truly work. And I invite you to allow Christ in to help bear this yoke with you, this burden. And it is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Is it cold? Is it dull? Is it boring? Are, are you aloof? Because these right here, these are zeal zappers, or if you don't like that term, they're passion killers. They steal your zeal. They, they draw your attention, the allurements of the world. They just start getting your focus off of what the true goal is, and that is this dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And it pulls us away, and it weakens us, and we wonder, wow, why do I find myself succumbing to pornography? Why is it that I find myself succumbing to anger and, and depression that seems to control my thoughts? And why is it that I, I, you know, you're talking about walking in victory and all I can say is I feel like every day I'm walking in defeat. And I believe that it's because many times, number one, when we're in desperate situations, like I just mentioned, we don't cry out to him and surrender to him. We want him to join us in the battle, but Jesus, please do it my way. I'm gonna lead the battle here, okay? If you wanna help, that's great. But we're gonna do it my way. So we've got the plan, we've got the strategy, we've got the ideas. And God says, when you do that, he says, but you know what, for me to really do this, I'm going to lead you. And now what I'm getting into is there are also these things that will steal our passions and their sins. And God is saying, I'm needing you to lay these down. These desires of the world will seek to lead you astray. What does he say there in Joshua 23, verse 12? He says, do not ally yourselves 
with the survivors of the nations that, excuse me, that remain. I want to give you a picture right now. And it's a picture of a city dump. And it's where they take all of the garbage that they don't want, that they don't need, that if they leave it in their house will only attract the rats and the roaches. And many of us, we said, you know what? I want to get rid of all of this stuff because I don't like the rats and the roaches. And we have a company and the hauls it off to the garbage dump. But guess what we find ourselves doing? We take visits to the garbage dump, don't we? And we sort through the trash, and it's like we have second thoughts. Wait a second. Maybe I didn't want to get rid of all of this stuff. And now we begin sorting through the garbage that we got rid of. Are you following the analogy here? We start sorting through the garbage that we got rid of and says, you know, no, no, on second thought, I think I'm going to keep this. And I think I want to keep this as well. And, and Joshua is saying... You do not sort through the garbage. Don't keep, don't allow to remain in your land survivors of these nations. The nations, these nations were, were heavily involved in the occult, heavily involved in sexual immorality of all kinds to the point where God said, I, I can't even redeem these cultures. And he has to wipe them out. And he uses Israel to do this. But he's saying, Israel, make sure you don't go back to the city dump. Don't look out there and say, oh, you know what? They're, they're good builders. I, I, I think we'll keep them. Oh, they're, they're good at strategists, military strategists. I think we'll keep them in the land. Don't do that. Don't pick and choose. Don't go through your life, stuff that Jesus is wanting to get rid of and have second thoughts. You know, I, th I think I am going to keep this. I think I am going to keep this. Stop sorting through the garbage. No second thoughts. And then I just, I just want to conclude with some thoughts right here. Our relationship with the Lord, if we're going to see it grow, is going to reflect, because we're made in his image, it's going to reflect our relationships with one another. I think that's a basic principle we can all agree on. And what is it in your interrelationships with one another that causes breakdown? Is the, those very same problems that cause interrelational breakdown that will cause this breakdown in a relationship with God? Arguments. You know, first of all, in our relationships, we can get distracted by various things that now when we bring it into full circle into how it applies Daily in our walk with Christ, we would call them distractions of the world. But what about arguments, unresolved hurts? You know, you find those in relationships in which you don't deal with them, your relationships are going to go sour. They're going to be filled with hurts. They're going to, they're going to uh, bitterness. You're going to want to start avoiding the person, even if they're your spouse. You're going to start avoiding conversations with them altogether. And we can have these very same hurts and arguments with God. And the bottom line is, God needs to always win those arguments. Do you hear what I'm saying? We can feel hurt and rejected at times. God, why did you bless this person and not me? I've been praying longer. You gave this lady a child and I am still without. Why are you doing this to me? And I'm not saying I understand all the reasons. I don't. But God does. 
And that's why I'm telling you, when you have an argument or an unresolved hurt with God, you need to let him win. For some of you men, you understand the idea, happy wife, happy life. And you let your wife win. You understand that concept, don't you? All right. And I'm just saying, I'm not saying that, that your wife is always right, but there's, we want to keep the peace here. And so usually we just say, okay, all right, I surrender, you win. And that's the mentality we need to have, not because you're just trying to keep the peace with God, but because he's right. He is always right. So let him win. Lay down these arguments. Lay down these hurts. They will keep you from having this intimacy with him and ultimately from walking in daily victory. So let him win. And then the last thing is we can tend to grow apart, can't we? No communication, no interaction. And I'm just going to encourage you, be proactive and seek that relationship with God. You know, here, here's what I found. That when my back is up against the wall, it forces me to press into God. I, I'm not gonna, I, I, initially, yes, okay. I, I can't have an argument with God. I can ask the why questions, and we all can. But even as Job, when he had lost church, he lost everything except that wife that told him to just curse God and die. I'm, I'll ask that, God, why, of all the things that you let Job have, you left, okay, that was your choice. But you took everything from him, all of his money, his children, 10, they had 10 children, you took them all from him. What, what pain, what hurt, what, what an argument he could have had with God. God, I don't get it. Look at how I have served you. Look at how I've pressed in and I've, I've even asked you to forgive my children just in case. And in God's commentary on Job's life to Satan was, I have not found anyone more righteous than him in all the land. And of course, Satan says, well, yeah, well, of course he loves you. Look at all that you do for him. Just take it all away and see what he says. So God allowed Satan to take it all away. And what never ceases to amaze me was Job's response. I came into this world with nothing, and I'll leave this world with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he let God win. And it forced him to press into God. He, he didn't stop and just say, God, I don't understand. You are wrong. This, you hate me. What, I hate my life. He didn't say that. He let God win. Can you stand with me? I invite you to let God win. I invite you because when you do that, you allow him to step in and do awesome, amazing things. I've said it before, but the key to victory is surrender. The key to victory in your life is you being able to surrender to him and have him step in and let him shoulder this problem, this issue, this difficulty. His love for you is so amazing. It is never ending. 
And there must be this yearning in our heart as Psalm 27, as David says, this one thing I seek, to know you, God, to seek your presence, to be with you in this intimacy of relationship. Blessed be the name of the Lord, regardless of what comes. And so, Father, God, we want victory in our lives. We're, we're wearied by defeat and, and we're tired of it. We realize we have been distracted by so many things. God, we're wearied by our distractions. We find ourselves so vulnerable. We find ourselves to this point in which we, we want to throw in the towel. We want to give up. And it's at that point, God, I am asking for every single one of us that we fall before your throne. We acknowledge you're the one in control. You are the one who is going to be able to change these circumstances hard as I may try. So right now, God, we invite you into our difficult situations. Build my faith. Intensify my love so that I will be able to pursue you fully. I will run after you. That in that day of testing, I would be able to rout a thousand because my God fights for me. Jesus, come in right now into our situations, into our lives and make those changes. God, if we've been growing distant from you, pull us back to you. If we've been getting our attention on the things of the world, cut those things off and give us your, allow us to, to give you our full attention and devotion. Win our hearts, Jesus, please. Please, God. Hmm. Thank you, God, for all that you have in store. Thank you for the future victories that are going to be won because we've invited you in, no strings attached. Thank you, God, for these relationships that you are going to heal, these impossible situations that we can't deal with, but you can. We will walk in victory. We will see the enemy routed because our God will arise and our enemies will be scattered. Do this, God, in our lives, every single one of us today, in Jesus' name, amen.